for the chairman and my dearly beloved brethren and sisters and our dear young people. We come aside from our mundane pursuits, aside from the futile cares of this life, to stand for a moment on holy ground, to take a glimpse at eternity through the agency of the angels of God. And there are three reasons why we want to look at the angels of God over the next few days, God willing. first of those is a very personal one and that is that we might strengthen our vision of sharing divine nature that we might have some comprehension of what our future role is because we know that we are promised to be made equal unto the angels and so we're going to put substance upon that promise brethren and sisters and young people that we might be able to comprehend the joy that is before us in the immortal experience not just what it is to have an immortal body equal unto an angel but in the great privilege of representing the God of heaven upon the earth we want to understand their relationship to the Father their emotions their interests their excitement their joys and how it is that God makes their work eternally interesting because that's how God intends to deal with us when he makes us equal unto the angels and we partake of divine nature the second reason to consider the angels is also a personal one there is no clearer promise in the Bible than God has said to us that he's assigned to each of his saints an angel with the responsibility of getting us into the kingdom of God the hard thing about that particular promise is that we find it so hard to believe it that God could spare an angel for us and we're going to see that the angels indeed encamp around the saints by providence they work God's will in our lives and we have to learn how to work with them and we're going to pick up as we go through some triggers about how to work with our angels from those who've gone before in the scriptures and we're going to see that the angels minister to us right from birth to the judgment seat and beyond and the third reason to consider the angels is to be aware of their mighty hand amidst the nations the angels are God's eyes and they are God's hands they run to and fro through the earth that his will might be performed In Daniel chapter 4 they are described as the watchers even holy ones that are sent forth in the kingdom of men that God's will might be performed to set up kings and to remove kings according to his purpose to fulfill God's timetable that's in, in operation and where necessary to manipulate history according to his purpose and we're going to see that God through them rules mightily in the kingdom of men we're going to see angels given charge over certain cities elect angels that perhaps have responsibility for individual ecclesias and we're going to see the cooperation and the excitement amongst those angels as they go about that work of working for the Father. And again, we shall appreciate, we trust from that, exactly how God might use us in the kingdom by his grace. Now from the outset, I want to firstly just get rid of a few concepts that some of you might have. Perhaps some of the younger ones might be very much aware of pictures like this where we have angels portrayed to us in the church art as being either tiny little children with bows and arrows or chubbly babies or perhaps more likely we're used to seeing angels portrayed like that now I can think of nothing more awkward for sitting down or getting dressed and having a pair of swan's wings coming out of your back but that's how people portray the angels because when they started to draw angels back in the 12th and 13th century they figured if angels were able to move around the universe so quickly as they do they must have wings and if we'd started drawing angels today we would have put jet motors on their back but you see we've got to get rid of those concepts angels as we know on so many occasions appeared as ordinary men they are glorified beings in the image of God as you and I are and I don't think God's got wings so we need to get rid of those false concepts right away about what angels might look like and remember they are nothing more than glorified beings like you and I hope to be 
Now, let's say something about the study of the angels. It's very traditional for every speaker to get up and to make enormous claims for the veracity of the study that he's about to undertake. Let me say to you this about the angels. This is like no other study you will ever do because it requires us to expand our minds and to comprehend not only eternity but into heaven itself. And there are not many occasions we actually think about the way that heaven operates. And we're going to, we trust, look at a few scriptures that might open up heaven for us. We're also going to find that this is not confined to a few verses. This subject goes from Genesis to Revelation. And we trust that you might start to see angels in context where you might not have seen them before. It's also an inexhaustible subject. I've been studying this for nearly 30 years now and I'm still learning about this subject. And once you become sensitised to some of the keys as to how the angels operate, you keep finding angels that you didn't actually see before. So I can honestly say that I'm still finding contexts where angels are at work that I hadn't previously realised. And you'll see the angels standing by as you never perhaps saw them before. One thing I will promise you is this, that if you give this study your diligent attention and you get your mind around the concept of how God is represented by his angels, then you will never read your Bible the same way again. And I have to admit that for many years I read my Bible in, a, in quite an unusual way, rationalizing, rationalizing away in my mind when it said that God came down and spoke to Abraham that somehow Abraham heard a voice out of the clouds. When we, when we understand how the angels operate on behalf of God, then we can understand so many scriptures in the correct way. And when that happens, then we're going to have our eyes open. And there was a young man who was in the city of Dothan with Elisha, concerned about their welfare because of the invading armies that were around them. And Elisha prayed that God might open his eyes. And when God opened the young man's eyes, he saw what Elisha had been seeing all the time. And that was that the angels of God were encamped around about Elisha. And it might be our experience to realise, brethren and sisters and young people, that they that be with us are far more than those that be with people in the world. Because God sends forth his messages to the heirs of salvation. And we can have our spiritual sight open by studying the angels. Let's just remember this about the angels, that when we understand their role and their work and their nature and their excitement and their happiness, we are looking at the reality of what really exists in the earth. Our homes and our jobs, our possessions, even to an extent our ecclesias are not abiding things. They're all going to be swept away when Christ comes. This consideration enables us to draw back the curtain of the unseen and to get into the invisible as to how God sees the world in operation. To be like Jacob who saw God's host all around him. Like the shepherds of Bethlehem who were given just a glance for a moment into the rejoicing of heaven. And we can be convinced that we're related to eternal things. And that this life is really the illusion, the passing unreality. Now any study of the angels has to begin with their relationship to the eternal father of all. A couple of quotations here in Ephesians. We won't turn them all up because as you'll see we've got a number of quotations to get through. But a couple of quotations in Ephesians that actually portray to us the divine family. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 10 that God... In the dispensation of the fullness of times, God intends to gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So God has an intention to gather together in one all things in heaven and in earth. And when we come to Ephesians 3 verse 15, we get some idea of how God's going to start to bring together all things in heaven and in earth. And he's going to start with his own family. And we're told in Ephesians 3 verse 14 that God has both a heavenly family of spiritual sons and an earthly family of spiritual sons. For this cause, says Paul, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. 
And the word in the Greek there for family is patria. And it means those who claim descent from a common father. So here we have the eternal God who has one family consisting of heavenly sons and of earthly sons. And his intention in Christ Jesus is to bring them together into one united family. That's why the angels look at us. As we read about Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, O man greatly beloved. The angel hasn't been told to go and say to Daniel that he was beloved of heaven. That was the angel's opinion of Daniel. O man greatly beloved. And he saw Daniel as one of his brethren. You might remember the angel in Revelation 22 who said to John, Don't worship me, John. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets. Worship God. And the angel identified very much with John as a, as a seeker after truth, as a fellow servant in the work of God. And very soon, brethren and sisters, in Christ, God intends to bring together his family is as one. The family in heaven and the family in earth are to be united. And that's the purpose of God. And that's why he sent forth our brethren, the angels, that they might minister to us and to bring us to be heirs of salvation, co-equal with them. Now it's a very large family, the family of heaven. And we're looking at the family of heaven in these studies. Just a few indications in the Bible about how many angels there are. We know the Lord Jesus Christ said that he could call upon 72,000, 12 legions of angels in the Garden of Gethsemane. But outside of that, we have indications in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. In the opening of the kingdom of God that's described there in verse 11 where it says, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands or myriads of myriads as the Greeks should read. And we have the idea in Revelation 5 of an incredible company of angels that are there to inaugurate the kingdom with the saints. Paul speaks in Hebrews chapter 12 about an innumerable company of angels to which we are related. Ye are come, he says, unto Mount Zion, unto heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels in high festival. We are related to the rejoicing of the angels. Brethren and sisters, that indeed is a mighty family. Just turn up Psalm 104 and let's look at how this family came into being. Psalm 104 tells us about the origins of the angels. Now in Psalm 104 we have from verse 2 down to verse 5 seven evidences of God's eternal power in creation. And one of the things that God did, besides covering himself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a curtain in verse 2, laying the beams of, the ch of his chambers in the waters, making the cloud the chariot, one of the things that God did in his great creative power in verse 4 was to make his angels spirits. In other words, God immortalized these creatures to become spirit beings just as we hope to be made spirit beings equal unto the angels when God immortalizes our bodies one of the things that God did in the foundation of the earth was to make his angels spirits now only God has underived immortality God had no beginning God, have, God was not made immortal by somebody else he has underived immortality every other creature that becomes immortal is made immortal by God sharing his power with them and so somewhere, sometime, God made his angels spirits. And it's very likely that they were redeemed through a very similar process that we are going through. There's a number of comments in the writings of Brother Thomas, just one for example, that indicates that the angels came through a regime of knowing good and evil. You might remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had sinned, the angels said amongst themselves that the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. The man is now going to experience mortality and sin and trouble and pressure and death that he might appreciate the good. And the man has become as one of us, said the angels. 
So it seems very likely the angels had come through a similar period of probation, which is always God's method, isn't it, of developing people to be, to be fit for eternity. And it seems very likely that the angels went through a similar process. What we do know about the angels when we come to Psalm 103 is that they have a very distinct work to do in relation to the Father. It says in Psalm 103 about the work of the angels in verse 19, Yahweh hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Now one of the things that God in preparing his throne was to immortalise companions for himself and that was the angels. And so he says in verse 20, Bless Yahweh, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening to the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Now those verses are very, very simple, but they tell us a lot about the work of the angels. They excel in strength because they share the nature of God. They control his power. They stand before God to serve him, ye ministers or servants of his. That's their relation to God. They are not only family, but they are servants for God. And they do his pleasure. They do his will. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ could pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. They do his pleasure. And they hearken carefully to the voice of his word. We can only begin to imagine what it's like to be able to live, physically able to live, in the presence of the Father, and to hear his words directly from his own mouth. Do you think you wouldn't listen if God was speaking directly to you? Well, they hearken to the voice of his word and they go out to do his pleasure in the earth. Their whole existence is totally bound up in performing the Father's will and they are totally at one when at him. God's will is done in heaven, said Christ. They delight in his great wisdom. They delight in his power. And there's no hint in heaven of rebellion or dissent because the angels are completely obedient creatures under the Father. But at the same time, we need to appreciate that angels are not robots. They are not clones. But they are interesting and unique creatures with exciting relationships between themselves and, and towards the Father and his work. And we're going to see how intensely interesting God makes the work of the angels and how joyful they are in performing it. Now the primary work of the angels is very clearly spelled out to us in the meaning of the word that is used in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, to describe the angels. We have the Old Testament Hebrew words, the word malach, which means a messenger to send as a deputy, which is a very good description of what the angels are done. They are sent by God as deputies on his work. We also find one particular, many occurrences where the word Elohim is used to describe the angels. And of course Elohim is a plural word in the Hebrew. And it means mighty ones. So here are mighty ones that God sends forth to do his work. And we have one particular occurrence, the mighty or powerful ones in Psalm 78. So they are the Old Testament words that are used of the angels. When we come to the New Testament, we have a word, angelos or agalos, as you might say it in the Greek, to mean carry tidings or to be a messenger. So the very similar concept to the Old Testament messenger is portrayed in those words. And so we see that what God has chosen to do with the angels is to share his work with them, as we pray that he one day might do with us. The angels cooperate with God in God's grand purpose of expanding his glory in his family, of bringing more sons to be part of that eternal spirit in which God intends to enthrone himself upon the earth. And their work is to go out for God, to communicate to mankind, to care for mankind by providence, and to guide the lives of God's saints that God might bring them into his family eternally. And so we find that the work of the angels is so often described in the phrase of standing by. That's why we chose that title of Those That Stand By. Now, here's a key to understanding the angels. I've got to assure you that this is an absolutely incredible key 
when you're looking through the Bible and saying, is there an angel here or not? You will be amazed how many times you'll come across this phrase, stand by. You might, re- might remember in Daniel chapter 10, he says, there came and I, I spoke unto him that stood by, says Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. Look at some of these contexts. Genesis 28 with Jacob. Behold, Yahweh stood by him. Yahweh came down and stood in Numbers 12. Joshua 5, there stood a man with a sword drawn in his hand. Yahweh came and stood. The angel of Yahweh stood by in Zechariah chapter 3. The angel standing on the right hand side of the altar of incense. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Acts chapter 1. He'd seen an angel in his house which stood, Cornelius. And there stood by me this night the angel of God, said Paul. And in the parable that Christ gave about the parable of the pounds where the Lord says to those that stood by, cast out the unprofitable servant. So you see again and again in the Bible you have this key to the presence of an angel which is this phrase, standing by. And the angels stand by God to do his will as those servants who are waiting to be dispatched on his messages, they also stand by his saints to care for them and to guide them through life. And that's a very important key in understanding the work of the angels. So, let's look a little bit further at this concept of the angels representing God upon the earth. Now, we make a lot of our doctrinal stand, and and very rightly so, we point out that there's only one God. But you can't really understand the Bible unless you understand that God is represented in other creatures. And so we have to also understand the doctrine of God manifestation, that God reveals himself through other beings who are sometimes spoken of as God. And we have to come to understand that. Now we know what the Bible says. It says no man has seen God at any time. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 we're told that God is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man can see or has seen. Now how can we reconcile those sort of statements with what appears below? Where it says to us that Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai and the people were told not to go near and to gaze. Of all the occasions we're told that God appeared unto Abraham. You see you can only reconcile those statements with a correct understanding that God was manifest through his angelic creatures. So the work of the angels is to reveal the invisible God and none of us could look upon God and live. None of us could behold the glory of the Father and not be withered away by the majesty of his presence. And because that we cannot behold the Father face to face, he sends to us his representatives, the angels and in his day the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the future the Lord Jesus Christ will be God with us God dwelling upon the earth in the presence of his son. So you see we have to understand this fundamental concept of God manifestation or God being represented. To bring it down to an everyday level if the power went off and we had to call out the electricity supply people the chap that came to the door wouldn't introduce himself as Fred Bloggs from the power company. He would come and say Queensland Power here or Brisbane City Council whatever it is because he comes to represent that particular body. And the angels come to represent God. Brother Thomas says in Opus Israel, it is a well-established principle of the scriptures that what the Eternal Father does by his agents, he is considered as doing himself. And so we have a very unique understanding in the truth of the doctrine of God being manifest in other creatures. And so we find that there's a lot of context that we can read where he talks about God being on earth. And we can understand them very clearly because we understand this is the angels coming down to the earth. Exodus chapter 20, it says, Moses drew near where God was. Yahweh descended in a cloud and stood with him there. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. God went up from Abraham. God called out of the bush. Yahweh spoke unto Moses face to face. They saw the God of Israel. You see, we can understand these verses very easily once we get the idea that God's representative, the angel, was there to speak on behalf of God. And as far as Moses was concerned, that when he spoke to that angel face to face, 
Not only did he have a friendship with that angel, but he was speaking directly to heaven by talking to that particular angel. Yahweh met Balaam and sought, uh, met him and sought to kill Moses. God came to Balaam, Behold, I will stand before thee on the rock. And you could go on multiplying similar examples and through the Bible, all of which are easily understood once we grasp the principle that God is represented by other creatures, and particularly his angels, that he sends forth into the earth. And it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, of many of the Bible passages. I don't know about you, but I used to read Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3, and where it said, the Lord God put Adam into a deep sleep and took one of his ribs. And I had this vision of sort of this hand coming down through a cloud and taking a rib out of Adam's side. I really couldn't visualise through my teen years exactly how that was done. Or where it said that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the midst of the evening. I sort of had this vision of a, a voice just rattling around the garden. But you see, when you understand that when it says they heard the voice of the Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden, there was an angel walking through the garden, talking to the other angels that they heard the voice of. And we begin to understand that when it says that Yahweh came down or Yahweh put forth his hand, that it was the Yahweh angel, the angel representing God who was there, that was the one that is being talked about in those passages. Now we also understand from Genesis chapter 1 that through Genesis 1, 2, 3 and 4 there is a number of references to us. And we know that the churches make a hash of that and say, well this must be the Trinity talking to each other. We correctly understand this to be the Elohim discussing things amongst themselves. And you're probably well aware that in Genesis 1 verse 1 we have a plural word, a plural noun and a singular verb. Elohim, which is a plural word, he created. Now it's not talking about a trinity or a multiplicity of gods, it's talking about the one spirit of God vested in his angels. So the mighty ones, using God's power, the mighty ones, all of them representing God, created the heavens and the earth. And Brother Thomas, again, very clearly explains to us this concept. The Elohim gave the word. They brought the latent elements of the world into play. They gave direction and application to power. And the spirit of the everlasting father accomplished all they were employed to effect. The everlasting father by the Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. He made the expanse. He called it heaven. He did it all through them. They executed what he empowered them to perform. This is the solution we offer to this grammatical enigma. And so you see, we have in that an enigma which appears in the, in the, in the grammar of that particular passage. It's easily explained once you understand that it's God working through his angels in that context. And that's why we have the word Elohim, or the word that's translated as a small God in our authorised version, so often used of the work of the angels. That's how Jacob could say, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. No man can see God face to face. But Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, or Elohim face to face. And he called the name of the place Peniel, the faces of Elohim. So you see, Jacob had seen God in the sense of seeing God's representative in that angel. And so the angels speak and act on behalf of God as his representatives in the earth. If we take the angels as a total group, the Bible describes them under the term of Yahweh Sabaoth, he who will be armies, translated in our Bible under the phrase the Lord of hosts. Now the Bible talks about the army of heaven. Come to Daniel chapter 4 and let's look at this concept of a militant force that God uses in the earth. And this comes from the mouth of the chastened Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4 Verse 34, from the middle of the verse it says, I bless the Most High and I praise and honour him that lives, lives forever. And then in verse 35, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or to say, what doest thou? So there's the army of heaven. That's Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh who will be armies. And so we have a term that is often used in the Bible to express the fact that God is 
coming in judgment. And there are a number of books in the Bible that have a judgment theme in which Yahweh of armies is used frequently to describe the position of the Father. Because God is portraying that he has the power in the army of heaven to enforce his will upon mankind. But the angels cooperate as an army to achieve God's will by manipulating the elements that God has given into their control. If you look through history, there are some remarkable events that are attributable to the power of the angels manipulating nature. Some of these could be most interesting to talk about individually, but the flood, of course, was a mighty cataclysm upon the earth achieved by volcanic action. Sodom and Gomorrah, the famine in Egypt, the opening of the Red Sea, the defeat of Sisera, sudden rainstorm, you Brisbane people would know all about that, the Battle of Salamis, the defeat of, of, Sulam, of Julemain, fall of Constantinople, which was also attributed very much to the weather, the Spanish Armada that was destroyed by the winds of heaven, Napoleon's defeat at, at, in Russia and Waterloo, again very much subject to the weather, and so on and so on, through the, the different significant turning points in history upon which God had made prophecies, were very much affected by the weather. Even the French Revolution very much was also blamed on the weather. So you see, the angels have that power to go out and to fulfil God's will and to fulfil his master plan by manipulating the forces of nature. And if you just start thinking of some of the many fascinating things that angels do, there's a lot of examples of things that are most interesting. Just think how they got the chariot wheels off Pharaoh's chariots. Think of the gates opening as Peter walked out of the, the prison in Acts chapter 12. The gates opened before him. Angels were pulling those gates open. The angels with an unseen hand did many, many things through the Bible that were obviously interesting experiences for them to do. But we want to just focus down upon their relationship to the Father. Let's come to Psalm 89. Now we've got Rotherham's translation up on the screen which makes it a little clearer but let's follow through Psalm 89 and just develop this relationship of the angels to the Father. Psalm 89 and verse 5 The heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Yahweh, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. Now we might think to ourselves, well this is talking about on the earth. Well it's not talking about upon earth. The word saints that you find there in verse 5 is the word Kadesh, which means the holy ones. So, Rotherham has had a clearer translation in the convocation, the Kadesh, the sanctuary of the holy ones. We're talking about heaven here. We've got here a, a little picture in Psalm 89 of looking at what happens in heaven between God and his angels. The convocation or the sanctuary of the holy ones. For who in heaven, so there it is, there's the proof, for who in heaven can be compared unto Yahweh. So what the psalmist is doing is to say, if he went to heaven, what would we see? What relationship would we see between God and his angels? And who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto Yahweh? And then he says in verse 7, God is greatly to be feared. So even, the, even though the angels are the sons of God, even though he made them spirits, even though they live forever, they live in tremendous reverence for the Father. He's greatly to be feared in the assembly of the holy ones. Now, notice that word assembly there. If you check that word through, you will find that it's the Hebrew word sowed, S-O-W-D. And it has the idea of, I think Rotherham has a circle, a God-inspiring or in the circle of the holy ones, but the word really means a little more than that. It means a gathering in secret to share secrets. That's what the Hebrew word means. A little gathering of friends to share knowledge amongst themselves. And that's the way the psalmist describes heaven. God is greatly feared in the gathering of friends, the holy ones, and to be had in reverence of those who are round about him. So you see, God has a privileged group who understand his will and share the secret of his divine timetable. And he reveals that to them gradually, that they might help him fulfil his purpose. I want to show you how that operates in supporters, the angels. Let's come to the first of Kings 22, to a well-known record. 
the vision that Micaiah the prophet had when he was dragged before Ahab and Jehoshaphat. 1 Kings 22 and verse 20. Let's go back to verse 19. This is the words of Micaiah the prophet. And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of Yahweh. And he describes a vision that he's had. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven, and here's our term again, standing by. That's what they do. They stand by the throne of God. I saw Yahweh upon his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand on his left. Now Micaiah is having a very similar opportunity as to what Stephen had. You might remember Stephen before he was stoned said to the Sanhedrin, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of the Father. Very similar vision to Stephen. But look what goes on here. What, what Micaiah had been privy to see was what actually had gone on in heaven as to how God would cause Ahab to go to Ramoth Gilead and be killed. Now verse 20, let's follow this through. Just try and picture heaven itself. And Yahweh said, Who shall persuade Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. There's God's will, that Ahab should go to Ramoth Gilead and fall in battle. But Ahab's got to do that of his own free will. God's not going to suddenly send down a bolt of lightning and kill Ahab. He's got to go into that battle of his own free will. So things have to be arranged around him to make that happen. And God says to his servants, the angels, who's going to persuade him? So he throws out a challenge to the angels and says, well, give me some some suggestions as to what you think. And so we find at the end of verse 20, one said on this manner, another said on that manner. So the angels offered suggestions as to how God might accomplish that. And finally, one of the angels comes along, one spirit being, there came forth a spirit, a spirit being, and here we go again, stood before Yahweh and said, I will persuade him. And God says, how? Now this particular spirit had done a bit of thinking about the way God had operated in the past. He'd remembered what had happened in Judges 9 and verse 23 with the men of Shechem, how that God had sent an evil spirit amongst them to accomplish his will in days gone by. And so he came to God and he said, well, I remember once before we did this, I will go forth and cause a spirit of falsehood, as Rotherham translates it, not a lying spirit, God doesn't tell lies, but I will create a spirit of falsehood amongst his prophets. And God said to that particular angel, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail, go forth and do it. Now let's just take it, stand back and take a little picture of what's happening here. What a fascinating insight as to how God operates in the army of heaven. There they are standing around the throne of God. Even, even Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of God. None of the angels sit down in God's presence because they reverence him so much. Only Christ would come and sit at the right hand of the Father. They all stand around his throne, but then God says to them, look, we have a work to do with Ahab. How are we going to accomplish it? You give me some ideas. You think God didn't have a solution? Of course he did. He knew exactly how he was going to do it but he allowed them to think about it and to think about what he'd done in the past until one of them came up with the right suggestion. And then he said, well, that's a good idea. You've got the job. And off he went. Often happens in ecclesial life, doesn't it? You come up with a brilliant suggestion, arranging brethren say, good, we'll go away and do it. And that's exactly what happened here. He was given the job to go off and to do what he'd suggested. And of course we know that he accomplished that and Ahab was killed in the required way that God had determined. You see, God couldn't take away Ahab's free will but he could surround him with those who would, for their own ambitions and reasons, would give him bad advice, who would appeal to his vanity, who would deceive him by their lying words. And eventually Ahab made the decision that God wanted him to make. What we take out of that is the fact that God rewarded intelligent initiative. The angel who came up with what God had done in the past had the right solution. He understood, perhaps better than some of the others, the way that God operated. 
And you think how God might use us in the kingdom, brethren and sisters. Our experience is not going to be robotic. It's not going to be automatic and mundane and tedious that every day we get up and we say, here's exactly what you've got to do. It's not like that. In the great work that we have ahead of us in the kingdom of God, God has got to encourage us every day of our eternity to use our intelligence and our initiative to apply biblical principles, the things that we learnt in this life, to think about the way that God's operated in the past and to apply that to the nations in the future. And even though like the angels we will know an enormous amount more than we know today, nevertheless we won't be told everything. God limits angelic foreknowledge for a very good reason. Just take a note of some of these quotations that talk about the aspect of what the angels know and don't know. We're a bit like the woman who came to David and said, you know, an angel is the most greatest example of wisdom. And I suppose compared to us they are. But the angels don't know everything. And for a very good reason. We're told in Daniel chapter 10 that Gabriel says to Daniel, Behold, I will show you that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. And that's telling us very clearly that there were only two angels, Gabriel and Michael, that actually understood the full ramifications of the divine timetable, the movement of nations, the way it would be accomplished. And those two angels had to dispatch other angels to perform the will of God that they understood. But only the two of them knew it. And of those two, Michael knew more than Gabriel. Because it was Michael who knew how to move the king of Persia that Gabriel was having trouble with. And so he he went to help Gabriel and accomplished that for him. In Job chapter 4 we have a verse which I would put down as a poetic hyperbole, an extreme statement, where Job in his reasoning says, if we were comparing God to his angels, they would look stupid. Not that they are stupid, but if you compared them to the great wisdom of God, the angels would look stupid. A poetic hyperbole. But again it illustrates the angels do not know everything. Jesus said, Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So God has the day of the coming of Christ in his own power. The angels are not privy to that. Even the work of the atonement we're told in the first of Peter chapter 1 the things concerning the suffering and the glory of Christ, which things angels desired to look into. And we're going to see later on the incredible interest the angels had in the unfolding work of God's salvation in Christ. So you see, the angels have limited knowledge, particularly limited foreknowledge, of exactly how God will accomplish things. And God limits that knowledge to make their work interesting. The gradual unfolding of his plan gives them enormous joy. Do you think when the angels began to create that they knew every detail of what was going to be accomplished? Do you think the angel that went out and made the flower understood that there was another angel making a hummingbird with exactly the right length of beak with wings that could beat at 300 beats a second so that he could hover against that flower? You imagine what it was like for those angels, every one of them making their individual part of the creation and then seeing it all come together. Why did the, the morning stars sing for joy? They saw the manifold wisdom of God that had been in their hands, piece by piece. And when it all came together, they were amazed at what God had done. And you see, God doesn't tell them everything that he might make their experience interesting and exciting. Just come back to Daniel chapter 10 and just look at these angels here. Daniel 10, we see this problem that Gabriel has with the king of Persia. Now bear in mind that Gabriel is probably the second in the army of heaven after Michael. And he says to Daniel and explains to Daniel why he couldn't come in response earlier to Daniel's prayer. And he says in verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. So here's Gabriel, this great angel that along with Michael, has the knowledge of the divine calendar, as he says in verse 21, and he's got a job to do in moving the king of Persia by a certain time, and time's running out, and in the end he says, and lo, Michael comes. 
You know, the word low indicates a surprise, isn't it? Low. There he is battling away, not knowing exactly how he's going to accomplish it. God would never let him fail. But in the end, Michael has to come. Low Michael comes and helps him to do that. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. And you see, even Gabriel did not know fully how that would be accomplished and Michael had to assist him. But when the work was done, when the king of Persia has taken control of the world as God required that the Persians should, have a look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, forget the chapter division because it shouldn't be there. Let's read chapter 10, verse 21. But I will show you that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince also. Daniel, I'm going to tell you something else. You see that Darius on the throne of Persia? How do you think he got there, Daniel? Who do you think is responsible for putting him on the throne? In the first year of Darius the Mede, and I'm going to read it as it is in the Hebrew, I, even I, stood, there it is again, to confirm and to strengthen him. The scriptures of truth decreed that the Persians should take over from the Babylonians. And now Darius is on the throne, Daniel, and I am responsible for that. That's my work. And there's a sense of triumph in that verse. I, even I, are behind that. I am the one standing here to confirm that king. There's a sense of achievement that the angel has in accomplishing what God gave him to do. And brethren and sisters, let's think about what that means to you and I in the kingdom of God. If by the grace of God we are amongst that number who are privileged to inherit eternal life, given the responsibility to go out into the world and to preach to a world the great things of God, given great powers to be able to heal and to change things, given enormous wisdom like unto an angel of God, we will not know everything about the detail of the kingdom. You think about it. How much do you really know about how the kingdom will operate? We can describe the temple in Jerusalem. We can describe the resettlement of the nations in vague terms. How much do you really know about the kingdom? You see, there's a lot to be unfolded to us of exactly how God will accomplish things. There are obviously many stages in a thousand years of progress and development and results that are going to be achieved. And every one of us probably wonders how God can use us in the kingdom. But he can. He's called us because he can use us in the kingdom. What a huge task it's going to be. What a challenging and rewarding task it's going to be when by the grace of God we are given the responsibility to go forth as his messengers, as his servants, as those that share his secrets, and to complete the work that the angels began 6,000 years ago. And the deity who delights in stimulating the intellect of his creatures is going to make our kingdom experience an exciting and joyful one. You imagine what it's going to be like if we're given responsibility over one city and we perhaps go into a part of the world where they've never heard of the Bible and we've got to start from scratch and to teach people about the ways of God. And we're going to have all the problems that we strike today in ecclesial life with people having faith and losing it, people not living up to their faith. We're going to have to apply all the things that we learned in our pilgrimage. We're going to have to use initiative. Try this and try that. Perhaps go off and ask Paul or Moses what they would do in a given situation. Maybe even talk to the angels about how difficult they found it to make mortals develop their own faith. But think of the joy when we get a response. Think of the joy and the excitement when things are achieved. And we can go back to the Father and say, we have walked to and fro from the earth. And behold, the earth is quiet and at rest. Thy will has been done. And here are the children of the kingdom 
for your glory. What an exciting thing it's going to be as the kingdom unfolds to us. As stage by stage the grand purpose of God is made known to us as God has unfolded his plan to his own angels stage by stage. It's going to be for us, brethren, it's an exciting and joyful time in the kingdom. I've had people say to me over the years that from what they understood of the kingdom it sounds to be pretty boring. I just can't imagine it being boring. If the way that God has worked with these angels is any indication to us then we have ahead of us an incredibly eternal exciting time. You think about that. We think of terms of excitement in something that happens for a moment and then passes away. God has the ability to make their experience eternally interesting. So that time after time we find the angels singing their hearts out for God in absolute joy and ecstasy at what God's done. And that's going to be our experience through ages abiding. The promise is very clear, brethren and sisters. Both Old and New Testament say the same thing about what God promises to those who will put their trust in him today. They which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that age and the resurrection from the dead. Neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. And the Old Testament equivalent says exactly the same thing. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, they shall also keep my courts and I will give thee places or a right of access as the word means. I will give you a right of access to walk among these that stand by. And that quotation comes from a chapter that is absolutely full of angels standing by. And God says to those who are faithful, I will give you a right of access amongst those that stand by. We pray, brethren and sisters, that we might so see the angels today and understand and appreciate their relationship to God that when the day comes, we might indeed be amongst those that do stand by.